Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Birmingham musician Chris Halpin is a professional glovist, which is to say he's a live performer and recording artist, and his instrument of choice is a pair of Mimu gloves, the wearable musical instrument created by MTF's Imogen Heap and Dr. Kelly Snook. And the reason he uses the gloves rather than, say, the guitar, his original instrument of choice, is his disability. Chris joined us at Music Tech Fest Berlin back in 2016 to perform some of his original music live. And it came at a time when his use of the gloves as an accessible musical instrument was starting to become something of a real buzz in the media and public attention. And because of the way interesting stories work, the story of a disabled artist using a new, very cool, high-tech, wearable musical instrument was interesting in such a way that it also raised awareness of the very cool music of Chris Halpin. And so now Chris has travelled the world performing on stages to audiences that love his tech and to audiences who love his music. But now, of course, we're in lockdown. So I chatted to Chris about the experience of making music when your movement is already restricted to a certain extent, and then a pandemic takes it completely away. From one of my hometowns, this is Chris Halpin. Chris Halpin, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. It's very exciting. Um, I did wonder if they might ask me one day, and here we are. Um, Here we are at episode, what are we, 84, 85, something like that. And wow, exciting. We, we finally got around to you. Um, but this is your your history with MTF. I remember you being at MTF Berlin in 2016. Mm-hmm. That was cool. That was more than cool. Um, yeah, that was a hell of an experience, wasn't it? Um, the Funk House, that really, that's like the largest purpose-built studio in the world, was it? Something like that, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's phenomenal acoustics and uh, and all the rest of it. But we had you up there on the stage, but also you were sort of the, the interest of uh, many, a, uh, many a camera person and uh, interviewer. Yeah. And, yeah. So you were busy pretty much all the time. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, Paul Wu is a director who's done some stuff with, uh, he's done some really big stuff actually with BBC Two documentaries and things, and he was making a film for the British Council about uh, disabled musicians. And yeah, so he was following me around with a steady cam all week, um, which yeah looks pretty odd. Um, but yeah, that film came out. It's really weird how you you probably know how those things work. We shot hours and hours of footage, and the final film is like three minutes long. You know, yeah. Um, but there's tons of cool stuff in the can, which I think I've got somewhere. Yeah, it's good. Most of that whole year was documented really well, actually, um, which is yeah really cool. But I've just got piles and piles of stuff. The thing I keep. Um, I've got this big sort of anxiety at the moment because I've been torturing myself flicking through these videos of like tour footage and stuff and like with the lockdown situation and feeling like is is was that it how is this going to work with travel and stuff you know it's yeah you know the Facebook thing when it pops up with like here's what you were doing a year ago and we were just going into lockdown and then it's pictures of me at like Teamland Borderless in Tokyo with my gloves on like yeah we were, I was really kind of rolling at one point it's like now I haven't left the house for like, what, four months? It feels really weird. Right. And there's no news. I mean, there's no thought. Are we, when are we going to be able to perform and do go back to our whatever our lives will look like in the quote-unquote new normal? Because, you know, playing yeah. live is my whole thing. That's how I put food on the table. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, have you made any adjustments on that? I mean, you seem pretty well set up to work from home for a lot of the stuff that you do. Working from home, yeah, to a point. I think the thing that's been like... A big bump for me is like I'm 
really firmly a live performer and a touring artist. Um, mm-hmm. So consequently going into this situation like a lot of people have said to me oh you can just like you know put stuff on band camp and that, that sort of thing it's like yeah but i'm not actually that together as a recording artist that's kind of the thing for me um so i looked into uh, yeah dipping my toe in the whole thing everyone's doing their i think everyone was quick to try and do some sort of live performance thing online and i was like um thinking yeah i'm just gonna wait a minute for that you know because i could see that production values were going to creep up pretty quickly and jumping on your iphone camera with your acoustic guitar was going to get old pretty quick um sure steve lawson our good friend um he actually had a good blog post i think about this saying you know musicians don't rush this don't try and like you know start doing a zoom gig on day two of lockdown get your head around what's happening first yeah yeah for sure but to be, you know, to be fair, you are a recording professional. You know how the gear works. It's not uh, not a particularly steep learning curve for you, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really weird for me is that I have that frustration of being not a shabby producer um, in terms of what I've done with other artists. But there's definitely, um, yeah, I've learned a lot about myself in this situation, actually, because like, there are some just kind of mental barriers. I'm really like perfect i used to think that having a perfectionist streak was a good thing and i just completely now see how useless it is you're describing every recording engineer in history you know that right yeah Yeah. and it's kind of like to have that bar as a producer but the objectivity that you didn't write the song is one thing but to actually produce yourself is really really difficult sure yeah i mean the last single that i put out for the first time ever it was mixed by someone else um and yeah, the weight off my mind to hand that off and just be like, and then it came back and just, yeah, just sounded amazing. I was like, cool, right. this this feels like a step. But of course, then that, that enters a whole other world of budget and time and, you know, you get into a whole different thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's weird talking about it because I do feel like in some ways quite naive as a recording artist because wrapping my head around being a recording artist of myself, yeah, that's definitely a challenge. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've like, you know, there's stuff out there, obviously. There's a few songs that trickle out. But the last, what, two or three years, it's just been, you know, my life was starting to look like a Casey Neistat blog. I'm just in airports doing my thing, you know. it's It's been amazing. Wow. Well, uh, well, let's let's start at the beginning. I mean, I, we probably should have started with this, but um, I mean, to describe who you are and what you do for people who are not familiar with uh, the Chris Halpin oeuvre. Um, well, yes, I'm a singer-songwriter type person, cut from the same kind of cloth. I, like in my college days, I was explaining to my partner only yesterday, weirdly enough, listening to Automatic for the People, saying. When I was 15, I think I thought I was going to grow up to be Michael Stipe. Uh-huh. And I, that's and massive Radiohead fan at that age. And yeah, just kind of in that world. Doing my thing with really early on, even though I was kind of playing guitar and doing the very cookie cutter singer songwriter thing, I was experimenting with beats and sampling at a really, really early age. I had like an Atari ST and like that kind of setup when I was, this sounds ridiculous. I'm talking like, eight years old wow like really really early i used to like sample breaks with i had a cd player with like a that you could if you pressed it just right you could loop things so i got into sampling that way and just Uh copying it onto a cassette so i was always trying to embellish the music beyond just the guitar thing um but then yeah that was all going all right tom robinson was playing some of my stuff um but i have cerebral palsy which has had an increasing effect on my musicianship and it already had a big effect on my 
what I could do in terms of playing gigs and stuff. I've got a mobility impairment, but also a hand impairment. And the very long story shortened was that the hand impairment was just getting much worse. And the going out and earnestly playing guitar, what, where are we now? What, five years ago? That was just getting really, really hard for me. You know, I was really struggling in terms of um, not being able to play songs. I remember there's a song that if anyone follows my music called Ratted Me Out, that was kind of a song that people would expect me to play. And I remember a little acoustic thing in Coventry taking that out of the set because I knew I couldn't get through it. And I thought okay, now I'm in trouble. And I thought, mm. that started the process of thinking, it sounds awfully dramatic now, but it was starting the process of me thinking that maybe my career was kind of going to come to an end because I was making a record as well, mm. or trying to. And I was doing my first attempt at vlogging. So this is about five years ago. And I was vlogging the studio sessions for this kind of very Nick Drakey kind of introspective folk record that I was, I was sort of playing around with at the time. And... The vlog became not about recording, but about disability, really, and about the hand impairment. I was just lots of footage of me just being incredibly stressed and scared and realizing that I couldn't even record the parts, let alone, uh, you know, go out and play them live. So, yeah, it was a really weird, scary time. I would put on, as you do, you go to Twitter and you go, well, I don't know. I, that's what I think. I'll ask Twitter. I think, yeah. well, you know, I can't be the only disabled musician. I can't be the only person facing physical barriers to playing music. So who's out there? And people kept saying to me, you need to talk to this charity called Drake Music in London. This is what they do. So I did. And that's when I started on the journey of playing around with accessible technology and trying to work out, could I circumvent these barriers to traditional instruments? So we started playing around with accessible tech at the time. Um, we're just going deep in here, right? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I've got to say... And this is something that's been talked about a lot at Drake Music and something that people at Drake Music have said publicly, so I'm not kind of um, being disrespectful anyway, but to be un to say I was underwhelmed about accessible technology at that time was would be, you know, kind of an understatement. At the time, the idea of going from thinking of myself as quite a serious guitarist to um, moving my hand around in front of a light that could play a C major scale was pretty underwhelming. And... Gowan Hewitt is was the um, music tech wizard at Drake Music at that time, and he, and he totally got this. He'd seen my music. He really got behind a song called Hand at Emotion, really tenuous link, you'll know, because it was shot in your old neighbourhood in Kings Heath, the video for that. Yep. Many years ago, actually. That's a long time ago. What, seven or eight years ago? And like he really he was the first person who was like, you've really got something here. This is really great. Because I hadn't left Birmingham at this point. Um so right. to go to London and be told that I was doing something good, that was a really big deal. And it just was really incredibly good timing that Drake Music would also back themselves into a little bit of a, a fun but kind of scary corner for them because they'd been talking to a lady called Kelly Snook who was working with Imogen Heap at the time, mm -hmm. developing the Magical Mimu gloves, which um, Gowan had seen the gloves in action and thought, this is an amazing bit of accessible tech. And around the time, Mimi had tried and not succeeded with a Kickstarter program to get the gloves funded. I'm just uh -huh. going to work with the assumption that people know what the gloves are for a minute and we'll come back to the gloves. I, th I, think, I think we're at a point now where if you've been listening to the Music Tech Fest podcast for any length of time, you've encountered the concept of the Mimi gloves. I, right, I exactly, yeah. So... Yeah. Can I interrupt, can I interrupt with, a, mm, with like the really stupid question? What's cerebral palsy? 
Uh, okay, that's a good question. So it's a neurological impairment which manifests in a physical one. Your brain is damaged in such a way that you then can't control your movements in a um, in a useful. Uh, it, it obviously varies from mobility impairment to you know complete paralysis. In my case, I've got what's called hemiplegic. CP. So one half of my body is primarily affected. So the right hand side of my body is pretty flaky, wobbly. I don't know what a suitable. I'm allowed to be on PC about myself. I think like it's it's just a bit rubbish and wobbly, and um, yeah, it's quite painful. What's weird about it is that was sorry. That was going to be my question. Is, is there a great deal of pain associated with it? Because this is something that a lot of people don't talk about. We, we you know you, you can see and identify cerebral palsy in some extreme cases, but yeah, you don't yeah. know what's going on from the outside. So, so I mean, describe the experience a little bit. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's really painful actually. It's and it becomes increasingly painful. I think one of the problems with CP is that the old kind of medical model of disability looking at it as a kind of a physical kind of mobility impairment but because the brain damage doesn't progress it's been treated as a non-progressive um condition historically mm-hmm. which uh, is now slowly people are coming round to the idea that that's not accurate because as in my case with my hand impairment with the guitar thing and moving towards the gloves as we'll pick up in a moment um the there's there's wear and tear you know my body becomes less able to do things. My hand, when your movement isn't working right in the first place, you're, I'm always, like, I've got so many injuries as a result of this because my brain mm. can't, for example, control my gait very well. So because my gait's wobbly, I've damaged my feet, I've damaged my knees, I've pulled, I've got a, what's called a lateral tear in my hip where some of the muscles have just, like, given up. And, like, so the physical aspects become, yeah, they're super, really progress quite quickly i mean you know Mm. i'm reaching a point where i'm like how much mobility have i realistically got left in my life it's a big yeah there's a big kind of thing to think about and yeah it's pretty painful and painful pain management is kind of the big sort of headline for my life at the moment especially with the lockdown thing because the most successful strategy for me has been to go swimming right which of course i've now not done for four or five months and yeah that is literally kind of yeah really eroding my well-being in pretty profound ways actually right okay so so there you go there's my honest answer sorry that was a bit blunt but there you go no no it's exactly what we're after but uh but then you come across these gloves oh yeah gloves um well i didn't drake music did and gown was like so the way that they mimi had decided to get around the kickstarter not working was to do what they called the collaborator program so they developed 15 pairs and then they were selling them with view that people who joined at that point would be you'd be the the pioneers the first people to have the gloves and it was five thousand pounds um to have a pair and drake were really excited about this and as gowan once said said to me in front of an audience he was like yeah we were kind of looking behind the sofa for that five grand because we were just like oh we've kind of told them we're going to do this now so it was it was a big gamble for them and then it was a very they so they ordered the gloves and then it was just a really casual conversation with gowan because we were doing the at this point we were playing around with ipad apps and things and i was still just not clicking with the accessible tech thing at all and he was like you know dude you should just try out these gloves man i think it could be a thing and i was like okay and then you know he mentioned it again and it was really sold to me as like so there's going to be a party at imogen heaps house we can have a few beers and chill and we can see these gloves yeah you come in i was like yeah i'm coming and yeah it was it was that and it was a big i mean 
a bit of backstory. I was a massive, massive Fru Fru fan. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, Imogen's had a big influence on my career anyway. Wow. Going way back. Um, what, 2002? Details came out. And I used to work. Here's another blast from the past for you. I used to work in the Virgin Megastore on Corporation Street, uh-huh. which you'll know. And I remember that record coming out, and that was just like my obsession. I was just, yeah, such a big influence on me. So it was like, right, this is this is a big deal, right? So going for drinks at Imogen Heap's house was not something that was otherwise on your calendar? For someone who was sort of used to playing to 10 people in a pub in Digbeth, and that was a big gig, uh-huh. yeah, to be sort of whisked off and doing this whole thing, I did... I think I've said many times, I did an interview with Wired, which came to be like a sort of two-page spread, a massive thing. And I hadn't even opened the box to the gloves. Like the buzz of <laughs> they're going to be used as a an access tool was just like, yeah, that really captured people's imaginations. Right. And that's when Gowan was like, you know, we'd had a beer, we were kind of chatting and he was like, this is what I see, man. This is my vision. Yeah. You, gloves only artist, the like headline disabled artist this is going to be massive man are you are you going to do this and i'm like yeah i'm going to do it like, i had to, i didn't really have an opinion at that point i went there thinking like i could borrow the gloves for a couple of weeks and get a blog post out of it sure at that time what did you think the gloves could do yeah i'm trying to put myself back there so i think that i was just having initially i was having just thoughts about well what could i could I replicate a part or something? What could I do that would allow me to at least... There was this sort of baseline of me going out and playing the guitar, doing the chords and the vocal, and it's very... Um, what was, it's not particularly original, is it, as a format? And like, what, how could I replace that baseline? Because I was struggling with the hand impairment. Could the gloves fill in that gap and just be, you know, the chords or whatever? So it wasn't, like, super ambitious in terms of, like, where it went... I think the big thing for me with the gloves was that jumping very quickly along the timeline, it was really apparent that like, the best accessible tech should get out of the way. Like the access thing kind of left the narrative for me with the gloves really, really early because what it became about was a an artistic process that I just hadn't considered at all because I was making records and getting more confident in the studio um, and playing more instruments and using software instruments a lot. So I had, you know, facsimiles of strings and orchestras and things in my records and then going out and playing like C, A minor and G in a pub on an acoustic guitar. It was quite a scaling down. Mm-hmm. If you heard my records and then you saw me live, it's kind of like, you know, you're trying to ride on the back of like, oh, well, it's kind of stripped down or whatever, but it's it's not serving the vision of the song. And it was like, suddenly I was like, wait, I can have the orchestras and the drums and the... 10,000 overdubs on stage and play them all with the gloves well that's where my head immediately went with it which wasn't really what people were doing with them at the time but I just went oh it's like a one-man band yeah I could just have all the instruments on stage in my head it was like what if I just took a drum kit and two guitars and synths and an orchestra with me well I could do that right because I could just use the gloves and do it so that one-man band thing and that big production was the kind of light bulb moment very quickly just like Oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do with them. Is that Imogen- part of the part of the capabilities of the gloves? I mean, is it an expressive musical instrument in that way? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think so. Um, Imogen was doing a lot of vocal orientated stuff, which was kind of her thing at the time, and it was just really like beautiful stuff. I remember seeing a, on that weekend she did a demo where she sang a note, and then um, she seemed to catch it in midair, and then she turned her hand, and it was as if she was scrubbing the audio. And it was like this physical manifestation of like 
sound almost becoming this tangible thing that you could actually hold in your hand because she was trying to solve a really different problem which is why she developed them because she was making this very electronic music but in a singer-songwriter format she's singing over that stuff she's not a dj so as she put it in her own words she's like you're watching a woman singing with a laptop and for all you know she's checking her emails like why is the laptop there what's going on where are the sounds coming from how do you manifest that in a visual way that means something to the audience so that was the problem she was trying to solve with the gloves and which she does beautifully um obviously we came at it with this view that it was quite accidentally an incredible access tool because you couldn't i can't um like my right hand locks up and if i play piano it gets quite difficult and i can't move the keys on the piano to be where i want them to be sure but with a glove of course i can do whatever whatever my impairment needs right because this is the bit that uh i guess on the face of it seems confusing is that in order to make accessible music performance for somebody who has hand mobility issues you give them a glove and that, to me, that on the face of it doesn't seem right. But how you described it then about putting the keys where you want them to be, yeah, yeah. that <clears> seems to be the key to it, right? Oh, yeah, sure. It's not a... Like, what I started to get frustrated with that is that for all my musical ideas, there's this real... There's a bottleneck in the sense that making music becomes a... Ultimately, you can pin it down to a dexterity thing, right? Making music mm. requires dexterity. There isn't an instrument that... It, very few instruments can be operated without operated that's an unusual way to put it played i'll go with play but operated sounds more interesting um most instruments need two hands right two well working hands uh, of which i don't have two well working hands but the idea that any movement could be valid with the glove i mean the glove isn't and this is where some of the press at the time I was grateful for the hype, but some of it got a bit distracting. There was definitely a narrative of like, hey, Imogen Heaps solved the problem for disabled people. It's like, well, it's not that simple. Like, there will be musicians who don't have hands, full stop. A glove isn't always the solution, but it was a good solution for me. For someone with reduced mobility to go, okay, I can't do anything. I'm showing the camera, we're doing this in audio, but for your benefit only, I'm going to... like. can't move my finger so much on my right hand but i could make a fist and that fist could be a meaningful musical event it could be an arpeggio it could be a chord sequence it could be something so even the very limited movement you take the well what can i do and then you teach that to the gloves and then you output what you want to do so yeah it made complete sense to me straight away right it was a good access barrier for me access solution so gloves aside has accessible music technology moved on in the five years since uh, you were looking at this? Yeah, I think it definitely has. I think we've had a lot of uh, interesting um, developments. One thing that, and I'm saying that all this about Drake Music being completely on the record because it's all stuff that Gowan has said very publicly. They felt, and they're a wonderful organisation in the sense of self-analysis, and they felt that before they worked with me in an artistic capacity, they were had a prescriptive approach, as they put it. So, it, and this was how accessible tech worked at the time. You would come up with something that you thought might be a solution, then you take that to disabled people and say, "We've got this." And the first, my work with them was the first time they looked really closely at, "Well, what do you need?" And we tried different things and. Yeah, it's. Ju- I mean, there's a obviously it's more than a bit fortunate that the glove thing happened at the time that it did because I could be experimenting with other stuff for a long time. But this, what became in Drake Music's language, the idea of a bespoke approach that you really had to listen and understand the individual's barrier, and there isn't going to be a ultimate solution to, mm. 
here's the accessible tech that everybody needs. And since then, it's the what I've seen since then has been the and where MTF kind of comes into this is the the bubbling of the kind of the hacker mentality of people, this partnering of people who just want to invent something cool and interesting and know their code and they know how to make some kind of new musical instrument and some kind of new interface. And then there's disabled people who go, who is, they're like, well, we need new interfaces because instruments aren't designed for us. And it's been just such a beautiful marriage of minds, mm. seeing how Drake Music especially has really facilitated that um, connection between the right tech people people with a vision of something just to do something new often and and saying hey there's a commu- whole community of people here who need something new and that has been really exciting to watch i mean i've been involved in some really major projects with funding we've been able to award funding to music uh, you know technologists to develop new instruments on a bespoke mm-hmm. level for an individual like yeah it's massive and that I uh, getting out of the idea. I think at the time there was a bit of a like I'm I'm not poking any fun at anyone else's technology, but there's a thing called a sound beam, which is ubiquitous in um, what we I hate the term, but what we call in the UK special education, which is kind of like what schools will buy as the accessible instrument. It relies on a light beam, and you can move your hand, and it can play some notes. And I'm certainly not saying it's not valid, but that mentality at the time of like oh this is the instrument that for disabled people was like that's not really a reflection of the instrument but there's a culture around that kind of stuff of like oh right here you go we've got that problem solved and it's like no we've solved that now yeah. yeah yeah you need a much more bespoke approach and that narrative picked up again around the gloves which was really frustrating at one point because i was like um yeah it's really hard to articulate just how fast that story kind of snowballed in terms of like the interest in the idea of using the gloves to conquer an access barrier i mean it seemed so ridiculous i mean like i mean i was on bbc prime time news like you know it it was it was silly the excitement but there was also this undercurrent of like well they fixed that cool hey everybody come and get your mimi gloves disability solved did uh was there a nice knock-on effect for the popularity of your music at the same time uh well, yeah. I mean, it was just really bizarre because I was playing to... Um, so once I'd got the gloves and I'd got my head around how to play them, um, which is kind of... was funny in itself because I remember getting them home and sitting down to work with them and it was just like... Yeah, in my mind, it was just like QI klaxon, abort, abort. It was just like, what have I done? I've agreed to take this like £5,000 instrument this charity's paid for... I've got one of my favourite artists, like, really, like, betting on me, like, this is going to be awesome. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, yeah, I don't, I'll just play guitar. I don't know how to program this thing. I don't know what I'm doing at all. Um, so I was, yeah, briefly way, way out of my depth because I'm not that. Like I said, my, you know, I was experimenting with technology, like using drum breaks and stuff, but programming something like that was really, really new to me. Um, but, yeah, once sure. I got my thing together and once I knew what I was doing with my sort of one-man band approach... Then I um, just shamelessly plug in all the charities. I started working with a charity called Attitude Is Everything, who were trying, were doing amazing work to make music more accessible for audiences. But what they were trying to do at that time was think about it from an artist's perspective. And for the first time, they had the idea of a headline tour. What would a tour look like if the artist headlining it was disabled? What would that mean in terms of access? And they partnered with Independent Venue Week in the UK, which is the thing that runs at the end of January celebrating that kind of grassroots you know 
up to sort of 200 capacity those great venues where all the kind of where everyone comes up through um so that was my sort of big break really i got offered that tour got a bit of arts council funding to put it together and yeah it was just the idea just the the speed at which it went from you know bottom of the bill at an acoustic night in digbeth to 10 people to you know packing out places like um the half moon in putney that's the one half moon in putney you know a place where everyone's been through whether it's all the big bands they've got pictures of u2 and the stones and all sorts on their walls and um yeah i mean for me that sort of scale up was pretty rapid and then there was like the tv things and the you know i'm in sainsbury's and people are like you're that guy with the gloves it's like right okay so it really got people's imagination but yeah as i say there was also this kind of problem of like hey we fixed it yeah because i think of something like uh, an acoustic guitar and the number of ways in which you can play that and the different approaches to it and how expressive that is of somebody's you know what somebody's trying to get out as a musician and i wonder if something like the gloves can can have that level of uh, expressivity if that's the word yeah they've definitely evolved in that sense um you're you're battling with the there's two things to that really there's the exp- the amount of information the gloves can gather about your movement. And then it's also the quality of the software instrument and how much thought went into the expressiveness at that end. Because if it's, um, I do get asked this a lot about people say to me, like, oh, the gloves sound really good, don't they? But they don't actually have any inherent sound. They're just a controller, they're just t- mm. churning out MIDI information based on movement. So you need instruments that are expressive enough um, that have sampled you have sampled instruments now which i use a lot of they've been around for a good few years where you've got like you'll have a a concert piano and somebody has gone to the trouble of playing every single note at every possible velocity so you've got every nuanced way of every note being hit it has things what's called a round robin so you play one note and you play the same note again it won't play exactly the same piece of audio because the ear knows that they're hearing something repeating because our ears are much more sophisticated to this stuff than people would realize and it's really easy to it's like bad cgi in a film you know if you hear a software instrument that's off then you it, it just takes you out of the out of the song so you have to pair it with that right kind of mm. stuff but in terms of expressivity yeah I think as well it depends on the instrument. I mean guitars is a guitar is a really fickle thing because there's so much nuance in um like I say before the gloves I was making a record that was kind of in debt to local hero Nick Drake and uh, I would listen to Pink Moon and I think I know all these guitar parts really really well and then I would notice mistakes if you want to call them mistakes little things uh-huh. notes timing issues or maybe like a bit of fret buzz or something and those kind of instruments the more kind of nuance for that kind of stuff it that's much harder to recreate digitally you know sure like a piano seems to lend itself quite well drums that lend themselves quite well and then that that in itself took my music on a bit of a journey because a synthesizer is easier to manipulate with a glove than you know a guitar so the sound of the music was then kind of very quickly informed by the technology as well. Right. Um, Which brings me to, because we've spent the last half an hour talking about how you make music and why you make music that way. Let's talk about your music. Uh, let's start with what's Winter of 82, what's Disconnected, how do these things fit together? Oh, yeah, there's so many things. Um, so Winter of 82 was the kind of, it was, it was loosely a solo project and then it kind of quickly became like a duo thing so that was just kind of fairly straightforward kind of um 
indie-ish. We're kind of into, you know, we're 90s kids. So we were, you know, listening to OK Computer and, you know, talking about the Beatles and things and blah, blah, blah. So we were... Yeah, I don't know. I'm, that was kind of an interesting chapter. I'm massively underselling it because it seems like a hundred years ago. But I had a record out as Winter of '82 called "Bless This House," which made a little bit of noise. That was this is all pre-gloves. Um, mm-hmm. Tom Robinson was playing it quite a bit on BBC Six, so you know, it sounded like a thing that was supposed to be on the radio at that time. Um, Disconnect was obviously it's much more the kind of solo stuff. What I felt very clearly apart from the fact that lee and i didn't have time to make records together so much um weirdly because lee was sorry, sorry lee lee cogswell was my sort of musical partner in winter of 82 who also directed the film the gloves are on because he then came on tour with me because uh, he's now a really super successful uh director of documentaries and things he's got um I think this is news. He's got a uh, thing about the Style Council coming out on Sky. I'm sure I'm allowed to say that now because it's been advertised. So he's doing really well. But one of the first documentaries he ever made was the one about me, which is called The Gloves Are On, and he came on tour with me. Um, But yeah, so we weren't doing the band thing so much at that time because we were just really stretched out with this. And I felt that, for one thing, the name itself is looking back. It's like winter of 82. It's in the past. And yeah, so Disconnectic was born out of like, just acknowledging that I couldn't sort of shoehorn my slightly um, funky kind of indie guitar pop into this glove format, into these digital realms. It just seemed silly to say, oh, this is Winter of 82 and it's kind of turned into this. I felt like, no, this is kind of a whole other beginning in terms of how I make music. So Disconnectic was kind of the the rebranding exercise that I undertook what, a couple of years ago to be like, right, this is how I make music now. Um, and it's going to sound quite different to that other thing that you've been following. Apologies in advance, but this is where we're going. And people seem to be okay and with so that. How, how, well, how do you describe it to people? Um, so one of the things for me is, like, obviously the name Disconnectic came from... I thought I was clever enough to have made up a word. I was, like, thinking about the the movement being impaired, right? But then I discovered that it's an Americanism for cerebral palsy. It's often described as dyskinetic. Um, so it's actually a medical term. And I thought, well, how neat is that? I mean, the music making itself is born out of this impairment, which is literally dyskinetic. Um, so it seemed like quite a good serendipitous bit of um, branding because the movement that I have or the impaired movement that I have is the thing that informs composition it informs how the music is performed um, and I really liked the idea of it being so literal and also in terms of the music I guess it's like I'm wearing a lot of my influences one of the things I was trying to solve with Diskinetic which I think I did quite well on the last thing that I released Koino Yokin was I was really into metal as a kid and I got really back into very heavy metal um much later on, a few years ago, um, I went to see Metallica with my expecting to be wearing my nostalgia glasses and just being like, this is it. I want to do this. How do I do this? This is just having this mind blown near religious experience. Um, and I was like, why is it that only dudes are allowed, like dudes with guitars? Why have they got the monopoly on heavy? Why can't like a digital thing be heavy, you know? So I was trying to solve those kind of things. What's the DNA of my musical roots between very kind of harmonically ambitious stuff like the way Imogen had influenced me with Fru Fru, um, being a singer-songwriter who likes to play on the sort of darker side of things, you know, being up to my ears in Radiohead and R.E.M. and Smashing Pumpkins as a teenager. And also, like, how do you get some weight behind it? One of the things that kind of frustrated me on the tour was... 
it was going really really well i mean for for some context i booked that tour which the first leg of the uk thing ended at the half moon in putney um which was the biggest gig i'd ever played but that was booked as like a week-long thing Mm. and then people started ringing you got in touch you had me out in berlin which was like what how is this happening and then stuff like that just kept happening and I was going around, I didn't have time to change anything because it takes ages to program anything with the gloves. So I was going around with this thing that I put together for like a few gigs in the UK. And then a year later, I'm still flying around doing the same kind of set. And I was getting increasingly dissatisfied with it. And then I had the gig offer that was like, right, this is my chance to kill it. I'm going to like, you know, as my mate Grant, he was like, you're doing so well. Why Why now? Why shoot the cash cow now? You're doing amazingly well. I was like, no, it's got to stop now. I'm really not artistically that happy. So I headlined the Millennium Stage at the Kennedy Centre in Washington, D.C., about 18 months after that first gig in the U.K. I was like, right, this is, you know, for something that was you know, a week-long experiment to be, you know, flying to the U.S. 18 months later. Um, they told me afterwards that the these are the free concerts they have at the Kennedy Centre, and they told me afterwards that the last, the last crowd to break mine in terms of attendance was Nora Jones, and I was expecting, like, five people. And this, this was... This was silly. This is just like a sea of people. And that was the end of it. I went, right, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm killing this show, as it was called, The Gloves Are On, because I just didn't like the sound. I didn't like that I tried to take my kind of indie guitar songwriting stuff and I'd had to sort of pack it into sounds that I could get my head around making with the gloves. I I felt like it sounded quite amateur, you know? I felt like it was very kind of Ableton, like my first day with Ableton. I hadn't used Ableton Live, for example, when I started this. Um, So I felt like I sounded pretty amateur compared to some of the stuff that was out there. And I was like, right, I've got to rethink this. And and that was when I got back to the idea of what are the problems I want to solve? Well, I don't want to make this sound. How do I make it heavier? What do I, you know, and that's when it started to feel like it has to be a new thing. I have to start, I have to kind of reboot and rebrand. And that's where Diskinetic kind of became the thing. Right, because I was watching the video for Koino Yokan uh, just before we uh, did this interview, and one of the th- two things really stood out. Uh, one is you get quite power chordsy on it, uh, yeah, which which is very cool. That's um, always been the ambition. Like, how do you make this really rock? Yeah. Do you know Robin Valk? Oh, very well. Yeah. Okay, great. So, yeah. The problem has always been on my mind because when I first got them home, sorry, um, just not everybody listening will though. So we should probably yeah. Say so I'm who just going to talk as if it's just between you and I. Um, <laughs> yeah. Robin Valk is uh, he was former head of BRMB many years ago. He's got he was on Rhubarb Radio at this time. He's a, just a bit of a Birmingham-based champion of new music, but it has been for many many years. I mean, many he's, a, years. he's a local radio legend for, for for decades, but also a consultant for how radio stations should pick their music. So yeah, so that's Robin uh, Valk. Yeah, and a massive, massive champion of mine long before the gloves came along. The first person outside of my little bubble to be like, yeah, this is great. You've really got something. And uh, he came and he interviewed me for his podcast at the time. Um, Yeah, and I was when I'd got the gloves home, my partner was like, I'd showed her what they could do. And then she said to me, yeah, it's cool. But is it metal? And I was like, oh, that's an interesting question. And I said, I relayed this to Robin at the time. This is just a few weeks later. And Robin was like, it's totally metal. It's so metal. It's so big shapes and power chords. It's obviously metal. I was like, not only that, but I'm a cyborg now. Yeah. And then the, yeah, so that sound that I had on that first tour, I felt like I'm not delivering on this at all. So yeah, finally to get that big smashing heavy thing working. Right. So the the second thing that uh, really struck me about uh, Koino Yokan is that there's 
a Japanese influence. And mm. you went to Japan uh, with Drake Music and you've got Japanese tattoos I can see on your arm. And so there's, there's an influence going on there. T- talk a little bit about the influence. Yeah, the, the Japanese thing. I could talk about this all day. Um, it's been a massive, massive influence on me. And I'm not really, I'm not even sure what it is began as it because it's been there for so long there was just something about um so i flunked out of music college to do um there's a confession that's public for the first time but i totally flunked music and i went and did art and i on the basis that like you know david bowie went to art college i'm sure this will make me a better musician i'm going to art college i have no talent for art at all remember being obsessed with um japanese typography i was just obsessed with there's just so many things about japanese culture that really fascinated me you know i was an uh, really into like the yo thing before anyone ever knew what i was talking about um there was just like a a big there's also some, oh, we could get really deep on this. There was some big spiritual stuff going on in my life as a teenager. I was really influenced by um, meditation and uh, some of the, the spiritual aspects of what was coming out of Japan. This is like really early on when I was like, you know, thir- 13, 14. Because mm-hmm. um, I left home when I was 13 to go and live with some people who were really out there um, meditating and Reiki healing and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So I yeah, quite a strange tangent that I went on with that. Um Well that's sorry, let, well let's sort of just there. go down that tangent just a little yeah. bit because that's gotta be a formative influence on everything you do, you know, like uh you know, go, leaving home that young. Yeah, um, it seems weird saying it now. Um yeah, so my parents were separated and I just had this um I remember my best mate when I was about ten, he said to me, Look, if my parents ever split up, I ain't taking sides, I'm out of there. And then it happened to my family. And I went, no, that's a great idea. I'm not gonna. I'm I'm out of here. And this is this is ridiculous. Why? I thought, yeah, fine. I can go out on my own. And I found um, fell in with a crowd that meant that I could. So yeah, really weird, scary decision to make. I have a six year old. My oldest son is six. Uh-huh. The thought of him leaving home in seven years' time is like, what? I actually did that. That seems intense. So I was living in this house where there were like um small sort of disclaimer i'm not sure that i'm i'm not standing by this stuff now i think i'm a little more scientific in my old age but it was big on reiki healing which is a big thing that came that's a big japanese influence um yeah it was kind of it was really out there i didn't go to school much i just thought i could meditate and play guitar and you know sort my life out that way i didn't have time for such silly distractions as my parents getting divorced and also going to school what an obvious waste of my time when there's you know riffs to learn songs to write and um spiritual uh journeys to go on um none of this is an endorsement by the way of anything that um i'm definitely saying you should stay in school kids um not this is sure. just a description of what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I thought I, I, th- I was one of those kids. I thought I knew it all. I was like, yeah, I don't need this system. Right. Um, and do you? Do I know it all? Definitely not. Yeah. Definitely not anymore. Not anymore. Um, the more you okay. know, the more you know you don't know enough, right? Sure. Something like that. Tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the that's the thing. You you feel less the more you learn you feel less and less confident but that's the way to live right you need to be inquisitive and um not so sure and trust you know question your instincts sometimes mm-hmm. and yeah so I'll, I'll release you from this diversion a little bit you were in art school yeah interested in japan. where was yeah. i doing that oh yeah so we're talking about japan weirdly enough um yeah 
Yes. So, yeah, just a big fascination with Japan and Japanese culture. And it's always just been, and I didn't really know why. There was just always, always this pull of like this feeling of wanting to be in Japan. And then I got the call. Um, I remember I did a demo for in London um, and some people from the arts council, uh, sorry, the British council in Japan had were over visiting and looking mm. at stuff. And they saw me perform and then there was a bit of buzz and people were like, oh yeah, you should expect a call. They really liked you. And then a couple of years passed and I was like, oh, that Japan thing just never happened, did it? And then like a week later, it was like, oh, can you, yeah, are you up for this? Can you come to like Tokyo fairly soon? So I was going to Japan and I, yeah, it was, there was this incredible sense of being in Japan and feeling like it couldn't be more different to where, you know, where I'm from. Like, there was nothing familiar language or anything and yet it felt really familiar and i felt like getting off that plane and just going out we got there in like late afternoon so we were just wandering around like tourists in kawasaki city and i just thought i know this place but not not only did i know this place but i felt like this place got me you know Uh there was a really strong and really powerful connection with japan um that became yeah that obsession then really started and really filled because i felt that there were just so many things happening for me while i was there one of the things that's really exciting and i think is i think is relevant in the world that we're talking about with music technology like i often find when i'm performing i could like i you know like i say i went to art college this is art with a capital a at the risk of you know i'll die on that hill man i might be a bit pretentious for some people but this you know this i'm trying my best here this is meant to be you know the real thing and you know i pour so much into these performances and then people you finish a song and then people in the uk are like so is it bluetooth or wi-fi and you're like okay that's not what we're here to talk about that's not what i'm doing here this isn't a tech demo this is you know and in Japan, it was like nobody cared about the technology. Nobody saw that it was technology. All the questions and all the discussion was about the movement and the story and how graceful it was. And they seemed to just see it as art. And I think, obviously, it's not a cliche to say that in Japan, relationship with technology is different to how it is in the West. And I think that the idea of a gestural technology like this probably seemed like less impressive. Like the idea, of, from a technical point of view, it just seemed like it was like, oh, yeah, we get what the tech is, but isn't it beautiful? Doesn't it work mm. amazingly well? And that connection with that audience felt really, really good and really strong and really validated, actually, what I was trying to do because I did feel like for a long time some of that stuff was not landing. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm just like, sure. oh, okay, cool. I'm really trying here. And it's like, uh, oh, are you on a 5G router? So, I don't care. Sorry to disappoint, but yeah. Well, what's really interesting is, uh, apart, apart from the the sort of the grace of the movement that was discussed, the idea of it as narrative is kind of interesting because you describe yourself on your website as essentially a storyteller. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Because it's um, it's funny you ask me that now because this has been sort of this has been sort of opened as a more of a professional discussion now i've had some consultation and a bit of stuff going on between with my uh career plan um i should i should plug i had some funding during lockdown from help musicians uk one of the things Uh they did was hook me up with some business consultants i've had some advice social media strategies and blah 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 one of the things we kept talking about was the idea that um you are is a story ultimately and that music 
like I I could see really early on that people were engaging with this what I was doing as a as a story as an event that wasn't necessarily about the music and I I've, I've always been totally fine with that. People always say to me, "Oh, it's such a great story." They don't say to me, "You make great music." It's not that they don't like my music. They talk about my music, but even people who I know really like my music will come back to it's just such a great story, you know. And it's kind of it's like yeah this is a yeah those are the words that I always come back to it feels like a narrative it feels like a thing that's happening it all sounds you know it sounds good in an interview to be able to say you know I was on like gives good quote when I say that my career was on the rocks and I'm really kind of on the ropes and but I'm not exaggerating I was I was done for with this stuff you know because I just couldn't play anything um so the idea yeah I mean I get it it's cute you know an artist that doesn't have a happy ending or 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 is it going somewhere I don't know yet I guess (laughs) I hope so. I mean, you know, the fact that one of my favourite artists came up with this technology and, you know, got hooked up to do this and then, you know, all the things that started happening and the phone kept ringing. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a hell of an adventure. I don't know that um, the thing that I'm obsessing over at the moment is the... I've really lived in, for the transient nature of it. And so I've just been really in the moment, going and playing all these shows and doing all these talks. And then... The lockdown thing happens and uh, it all just stops. And I realised that I didn't have a lot of stuff that was kind of set in stone. One of the things that came from these Help Musicians UK meetings was the how thin the back catalogue is, for example, you know. And that frustrates people and I sympathise with that when people say to, you know, mates are like, I love this song, you know, a particular song that I play in the show. And it's like, why can't I hear it on Spotify? And it's just been, it's just not been in my headspace to do anything about that. I've just enjoyed being in the moment Mm. and having a break from thinking about recording songs because I had such big anxiety about performing live um, that was all wrapped up in, I now realise, wrapped up in my impairment and the amount of access barriers I was facing on stage. So getting over that, having that anxiety lifted and because the technology allowed me to get over those things. Because, I mean, this is the really weird thing for me is it's real seat of your pants stuff in terms of like the gloves, my first pair of gloves, they're like prototypes. They're very, um, it was a little shaky at times and it's gone wrong in front of big crowds and stuff. But, and I used to think like people are just going to boo me if this doesn't work. But the opposite thing happened. People really got behind the idea. People seemed to get that it was bleeding edge stuff and that it wasn't always going to work. And, you know, we got through it. I remember before that first tour sitting around Imogen's and she was like, but are you really going to do the whole thing just with the gloves? Like, she wasn't sure that they were ready for that because no one had done a headline tour where, you know, the gloves were the only instrument. There was no safety net for that sure. thing. There were no backing tracks. There were no guitars I could, couldn't could do anyway. Um, yeah, so if it hadn't worked, it was just, yeah. And it mostly worked. But the fact that it didn't work perfectly actually wasn't a problem. People totally got with that. And I guess that is what made it part of the story. Yeah, I think so. The fact that it was... Um, I remember doing a thing, uh, I just sound like I'm being really nostalgic about my, you can tell I've been in in for four months. Like I did a thing at Abbey Road, it was a big event uh, performing and I made, I was doing like drum loop things and I made a mistake and then it got stuck in the loop and I just was like, hey, well, you guess, I guess, you know, it's live, right? And somebody came up to me after and it was like, that's the best thing ever. The fact that you made a mistake. And he said, I thought you were just like, I thought it was just the music plays and you do an interpretive dance. I didn't know you were actually, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm really busting a gut up there. Like, it's really real. Um, so yeah, I guess it gave yeah. people some confidence in it that it was like, because that's the thing that people always say to me is like, 
but you could i've got a little bit of a troll on youtube he's like you could just mime why how, how do we know this is real yeah like, you're just gonna have to take my word for it at this point i guess i can't convince you but you know yeah it's a real thing hmm. so what's post lockdown for you what's the what's the next chapter well i think the problem with the situation at the moment is obviously we don't know where travel is it's forced me to look at things in a new way obviously i am actually recording music which is exciting um i feel like i'm able to get my head around that with the help musicians uk funding i was looking to like everyone is all being asked the same question like how do you do you know can you do it on the internet what can you do online so as i said at the start i didn't want to rush into that but now i'm getting set up with you know i've been able to with the funding i've been able to get a home studio to i didn't have a home studio at all mm. like i rent a studio so i had no when this started i had no way of doing anything actually right because i can't go to my studio at the moment um obviously um so i had to get started again with working from home and i've you know got a bit of a setup now with the cameras and things leading towards the inevitable thing because the inquiries are now coming to perform and do stuff do events but do them remotely i've got some talks and gigs coming up actually which are going to be happening like right here and that is cool i suppose that's strange i mean you know it's got to be done we've got to find ways around it i mean things aren't live music things aren't changing around live music anytime soon are they When's the next time we're going to do a gig? That cuts down on your carbon emissions anyway. Like, <laughs> certainly here, yeah. I don't know what policies are like in different parts of the world, but here, I mean, you know, it's been made very clear with the changes to the lockdown over the last like week or so that live music isn't changing. You know, there's mm. not going to be any gigs. Um, and people are adapting. My brother runs an events agency and they've done a big production over the weekend of having bands and artists in in a studio and they've been streaming that but it's been a real like high standard of production and it's been interesting to watch that unfold it's like mm. yeah we've got to completely rethink this and how do you make it look like something because for me i'm very old-fashioned i just like the engagement of meeting people and you know i love going out and playing shows and i'm i'm all for hanging around and you know people want hugs and selfies i'm i'm that guy and so the idea sure. that you just can't do any of that is like oh it's really scary to me but to be fair you're at a massive advantage over everybody else because you've already adapted to overcome a, a real serious challenge and so you know how this plays out that i'll yeah i should think about that shouldn't i um i hadn't really thought about that um no i'm just sort of nervously thinking um about how to make it make sense uh on a screen because that's just completely well not completely new to me i mean i made the video with um Josefa, you know the coin yokin thing i'm working with um an ongoing project that i have at the moment is with uh my choreographer uh ayaka takai who has been it's been interesting because we started that project remotely. She lives in Tokyo. So we'd, mm-hmm. we've been doing this kind of thing for a long time anyway. So that was like the one aspect of my work that actually didn't change that much because we were already working remotely. But that's one of the things that we're talking about a lot at the moment in terms of like designing new work for the gloves because this thing with Ayaka is about solving, for me, the problem of like how do you really make it really refined? I wanted that. Uh, mm. Apart again, it was a Japanese influence of wanting something much more graceful and much more um, visually stimulating than just kind of. I think the early stuff that I did was very straightforward, like oh, I can point up and I can play a chord and I can point down and play a different chord, and I wanted something much more artistic, which is why I started working with Ayaka. And the the extra layer to our work now is what can we do in this movement that is relevant to the camera and really thinking about where my hands are positioned and what that means visually because a lot of 
all of the things that we've been working towards were stage-based performances, you know. Sure. And we've, we're obviously not doing that anytime soon. So thinking about this... But phase, all the ways that you're describing what you do now, you're describing a dancer. Yeah. That, do you describe yourself as that? Uh, I'm starting to. I mean, yeah, obviously I had some Arts Council funding last year to support this um, partnership with IACA. And yeah, I just wanted to get... The problem I was got really wrapped around and what was really interesting to me was like I was playing music that I'd already thought about and then going, mm-hmm. what can I use? How can I use the gloves to make those sounds come out? And I was like, okay, that's cool. And that's been fun and it's paid the bills. But now how do we go at this the other way? What does my impaired movement sound like? How do we start with movement and then make movement informed composition? We design something that from a choreography perspective and then find out what that means sure. as a way of composing music. Yeah. So that's been the brief for that. And um, yeah, I do think about it. And there's so much kind of funny irony to this because like i've i'm mobility impaired i'm you know a physically disabled person usually sat on a stool you know five years ago sat on a stool in the corner of a pub not moving around much obviously and like you know my whole show the whole thing that i do everything that i've worked for now is so physical it's so Mm. demanding i mean you know like i have to really think i mean i love it i'm not complaining at all but like you know the nature of performing with the gloves has influenced like you know my exercise my diet my you know whole fit it's a full body thing to do yeah. i'm not sat you know i can't you know have like three pints and smoke 10 fags and sit on a stool and just churn out songs it's like physically demanding work and especially when you normally you can see i'm being really nostalgic about this but normally when you're traveling as well and you're dealing with time zones and stuff you've got to be um you've got to be on top of your game but i love that for me that's like a really exciting challenge and i've always got really wrapped around this delicious kind of irony that like for someone who's lived with a physical impairment of being you know kind of sheltered from physical activity and then having this music becoming this really vigorous physical thing um yeah it plays into a lot of stuff in my head about um i think it serves these are the narratives that only serve me but for me it's a it conquers a lot of stuff, you know, in terms of like feeling, growing up feeling very weak and very vulnerable and then going out on these big stages and throwing my massive rock star shapes. And it's like, yeah, that kid did all right, actually, you know. Brilliant. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been great. And yeah, hopefully not too... Um, I'm sounding really glum about the lockdown thing, but hey, maybe we'll be allowed to go out and play some gigs soon. But in the meantime, I guess I'll be playing some gigs online soon. Let us know when. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Chris. All right, have a good one. Thank you. That's Chris Halpin, and that's the MTF Podcast. You can check out Chris's music at disconnetic.com. I'll link to that in the show notes. And you can also see the video of his Koi no Yokan song on the podcast page too. The MTF Podcast's out every Friday, so hit the subscribe button, and that will turn up in your player of choice each week without you having to do or pay anything. You can also share, like, rate, and review, and if you know someone who might find this interesting, feel free to mention it to them. The show was edited by Sergio Castillo, with music by Tomas Novoa and Airtone, and Rani Da, aka Run Dreamer, made the MTF Audio logo. I'm Andrew Dubber, at Dubber on Twitter. Music Tech Fest is at Music Tech Fest absolutely everywhere. You have a great week, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.